Amen. It is good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. If you have your Bibles, meet me in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. It is certainly good to see Tim, have Tim back here, here with us also, um, Alex. Praise God for you, brothers. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, when you get there, say amen. I'll be reading from verses 9 through 15. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them and to be joyful, and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil. This is the God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people should fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. I want to preach on the topic, the happiness of life in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord God, for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for your word. We pray that you'll consecrate this moment. Open up the eyes of our hearts that we may be able to behold your son, Jesus in the preaching of your word. Thank you for your spirit's anointing. Speak in such a way, Lord God, that our hearts will be edified, that those who don't know you will be evangelized, and that your name will be glorified. In the wonderful name of Jesus and all the people of God say amen. Is it true that Christians ought to be the happiest people on earth? I mean, how is that even possible with so much sin and brokenness and confusion, and pain in our world? Should, should we expect Christians to be the ones to ex express profound gratitude in life? I mean, isn't there a difference between uh, happiness and joy anyway? Where in the world do I find happiness? It is so elusive. How do I find it when my heart is so troubled and weighed down by grief and guilt does God even want me to be happy in the first place? These questions stem from something deep inside us. Every one of us, as divine image bearers, we search for happiness, and the search for happiness becomes desperation when we hang the weight of our happiness on things that could never satisfy us. Nothing wrong with us enjoying the beautiful gifts that God has Bless us with just as long as these good things don't become ultimate things. Things that supplant the place of God in our lives. Last week, Leo reminded us that we experience true happiness because Jesus is a source of our joy and strength. We have a God of unshakable confidence. This morning, the preacher 
in the book of Ecclesiastes will show us how true abiding happiness is possible when God in Christ is at the center of your life. There is nothing better than life with God in Christ. The truth is, joy or happiness is a dangerous pursuit when God is left out of the equation. That's why people go on endless and elusive pursuits of happiness only to be met by one disappointment after another. In fact, the author here we identify as King Solomon, the son of King David, opened his book chronicling his pursuit of happiness, trying to find meaning in life and work and family and play, but all without God in the picture. He gave us some raw footage of his emotional roller coaster, if you will. He tried everything under the sun, serious work. Sensual pleasure pursuits, entertainment. He had plenty of singers and servants. Building projects and massive, beautiful gardens, art collections. His financial portfolio was unmatched. His wisdom was impeccable. His fan base was impressive. And everywhere he turned, Everywhere he went, many things he looked at under the sun. He went people watching, dissected the difference between wisdom and foolishness, the rich and the poor, the young and the old. He looked at death. He made observations about life. And in his pursuit of happiness, he ends up with emptiness. Everywhere he turned, happiness blew up in his face. Because God was not in the equation. So much so that his visceral reaction to all of these pursuits is vanity, vanity. All is vanity. A chasing after the wind, he would cry. So by the time we arrive at chapter 2 and 3, in the midst of his midlife crisis, Solomon comes to grip with himself and realizes that Life really doesn't make any sense apart from God. (laughs) Life without God in Christ leads to hopelessness and despair. Yet there is nothing better than life with God in Christ. There are three things the preacher tells us about God if we're going to experience true happiness in life. You ready? And remember this from A.W. Tozer. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. If we're going to experience true happiness, we have to understand what God makes. Number two, what God gives. And number three, what God does. Let's look at the first point, what God makes. The Bible says God makes everything beautiful in its time. Look at verse 9. What gain has a worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has put eternity into man's heart, yet he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive there's nothing better for them than to be happy or joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil. 
This is God's gift to man. A favorite verse we often quote reminds us of the reason for our joyful state in Christ. Paul said, and we know that all things work together for the good of those that love God and those who are called according to his purpose. Notice it doesn't say all things are good. It says that all things work together for good. On the same note, the preacher here does not merely say that everything is beautiful. He says he makes everything beautiful in his time. But what in the world does that mean? It means that everything is beautiful in its time, but not everything is beautiful forever. There's an expiration date to it, as we will see in a moment. But think about it. In six, day, in six days, the Father spoke the sun, the moon, and the stars into existence and created the plants and animals. And he stood back and looked at the beauty of his work and said, it is good every single time he creates But then he creates mankind from the dust of the ground and breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. And he exclaimed, it's very good. Yet as Piper puts it, God made man small and the universe big. They say something profound about himself. You see, all of creation is a treasure hunt in which God has left us clues pointing to himself, as we see in Romans chapter 1. I'm an artist uh, at heart, and I, I haven't done artwork in a very long time. However, I'm drawn by the beauty of nature and creativity on display. And I recall feeling so grateful one day for God, for his creation That one day when I walked outside of my classroom during my college days, I saw a tree as if seeing it for the very first time. I must have walked past that tree a hundred times before and never once paid attention to it. Now, I'm not a tree lover or a tree hugger. But that tree and all of its features stood out to me in that day in a way that I never saw it before. I mean, this was no majestic sequoia tree or a redwood tree that you would see in California. No, this was an ordinary tree. And I could instantly recognize the beauty of its bark, its branches, leaves, and color scheme. It arrested my attention for a brief moment, provoking within me praise and glory for God. Now think for a moment. That's just a tree. But imagine what life would be like if we looked at all of God's creation in this way. It's amazing what gratitude will do to open our eyes to really see. Have you ever had that experience where you, you stopped and you looked at someone or something and said, simply amazing? In fact, look at that image bearer sitting next to you or behind you and say, Simply amazing. Awesome sauce. David Murray in his winsome book, The Happy Christian, makes the case that it is true that the Christians should see far more beauty in the world than the non-Christian. You see, once your heart is alive to God's beauty in Christ, it is alive to God's beauty everywhere else. I repeat. All of creation is a treasure hunt in which God has left clues pointing back to himself. God gives us an eternal 
perspective. A friend of C.S. Lewis had a similar reflection in saying that I shall open my eyes and ears. Once every day, I shall simply stare at a tree, a flower, a cloud, or a person. I shall not then be concerned at all to ask what they are, but to simply be glad that they are. I shall joyfully allow them the mystery of what C.S. Lewis has called their divine, magical, terrifying, aesthetic existence. You see, the happiest people on earth don't have the best of everything. They make the best of everything because of their relationship with Jesus. Not only does God make everything beautiful in his time, but God makes everyone curious. Look at verse number 11. It says he has made everything beautiful in his time, but he has also put eternity into man's heart, yet he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. One definition of the word curious means difficult to satisfy. Now, though we are earthly creatures, we draw our sustenance from this planet. God has created us with an eternal capacity. There is something more to you than meets the eye. An eternal capacity that keeps prompting you and I to keep asking and searching questions like, what is life all about? Why am I here? Who am I? Where do humans come from? Where am I going? What is my life purpose? Who is God? Where is he? And yet may this verse remind us that we are finite and that God is infinite. We cannot wrap our finite minds around the whole scope of God's work. God has given us an eternal craving for tomorrow for something of lasting value. C.S. Lewis concludes that if I find in myself a desire for which no experience in this world can satisfy the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. We were made for another world. God has placed eternity in our hearts. We were built for God. And only God can fulfill that void in us. Jesus' own disciple Peter said, Lord, you have the words of eternal life and we have come to know and believe that you're the Holy One of God. And Psalmist David says, you have made known to me the path of life. In your presence is the fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore, as we heard preached last Sunday by Pastor Leo. The eternal void can only be fulfilled by the eternal creator. The concept of enjoying earthly life as much as possible because there's nothing after death is unbiblical. The Hebrew writer tells us clearly after death comes judgment. That sure sounds like eternity to me. Furthermore, Jesus is a source of our true and abiding happiness in John chapter 17. When he had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all to whom you have given him. 
And this is eternal life. Is it dying and going to heaven? No. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is a relationship. Samuel Rutherford, in his passion to know Christ, wrote poetically in his letters, and he said, put all the beauty of 10,000 worlds of paradise like the Garden of Eden into one. Put all the trees and all the flowers and all the smells and all the colors, all tastes, all joys and all sweetness and all loveliness into one. And oh, what fair and excellent thing that would be, and yet it would be less than fair and dearest, well-beloved Christ, than one drop of rain to the whole seas and rivers and lakes and fountains of 10,000 earths. In other words, put all the pleasures of life, such as family and job and recreation and sports and music and entertainment and cuisine and technology in one. And oh, what excellent joys they are. Yet such joys pale in comparison to knowing Christ Jesus and basking in communion with his person, not just his work. Mark Nolan, his book, Knowing Christ, raised the question, is Christ the, the drop of rain or is he the whole seas and rivers, lakes and fountains of 10,000 earths? Very poetic. But it makes a very profound, critical point that God makes us curious because of our eternal capacity. The Apostle Paul expressed it very well. He says, whatever I've gained, I count it lost for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as garbage in order that I may gain Christ. Yet even more astounding than delighting in knowing God in Christ is the fact that he knows us and delights in us to be with him as he prayed in his high priestly prayer. As Christians, we can rejoice not only because we have eternal capacity, but, but we also have an eternal perspective. We know how the story ends according to Revelation chapter 22. The author of any story experiences a story as a whole. He knows the beginning, the middle, and the end all at once. He's omniscient. He knows what's happening in the middle of the story while preparing his characters for the end of the story. Because we are finite, we see life in bits and pieces, like when we struggle to put a get together a thousand pieces puzzle. But God is infinite and all-knowing and sees all the whole picture from beginning to end. He has made everything beautiful in his time. You know, that gives me comfort. Because no matter how much we're plagued with life problems and pushed around by this pandemic, God is sovereignly in control. As Johnny Erickson Tata writes of her attempts to discern the Lord's reasons for permitting paralysis in her life. Says nothing like seeing our difficulties from God's perspective, she says. 
But what a mistake to think that I would ever be able to complete the whole puzzle of suffering. For wisdom is far more than just seeing our problems from God's eyes. It is also trusting him even when the pieces don't seem to fit. Fit. Anybody in a situation like that where you feel like the, big, the pieces don't fit? They don't seem to fit? This capacity for eternity in us keeps us curious for our creator and our creatureliness makes us dependent on him for ultimate answers to life. Some things are left up to mystery. We turn on the news and we to look at and ask what's going on in our world today. We turn to psychologists to help us with personal problems. We turn to sociologists to understand structures and how they affect whole people groups. We turn to politicians hoping that they will turn the tides of government in our favor. We turn to philosophers to get answers to the why question. But only theology points us to the one who has the whole wide world in his hands. You see, the best you can do under any circumstances is to put your eyes on Jesus. But now that we looked at what God makes, let's look at number two, what God gives. God gives us five gifts in his passions, gifts that display his overwhelming generosity. The first gift God gives us in this passage is the gift of time. Now, every morning, every morning, someone who loves you very much has deposited within your bank account of time 86,400 seconds of time, which represents 1,440 minutes, which equals 24 hours in a day. Now, there is one stipulation to your usage of time. God gives you the same amount of time each and every day. Nothing can be carried over to the next day as credit. It allows no overdraft. Each day opens with a new account for you. Whatever you fail to use that day, you lose that day. For I discovered that it really doesn't matter how much money you make. You can make a lot of money or you can be dead broke. You can have more degrees than a thermometer or have no degrees at all. You can be single or married. You can be in high school or out of school. You can be old school or new school. All of us are given the same amount of time. Regardless of your status in life, God has given each of us 24 hours in a day, and what you and I do with that really matters. Amen? The preacher reminds us that we're all locked into time that we might learn how to depend on our eternal creator who created time. You see, we're earthbound, and we come with a number of limitations. But the preacher elaborates and said that God really is in control of our time. He knows what's going on behind the scenes from beginning to end. He's very much aware of process, the beginning and middle and an end. You see, as we read in chapter 3, verses 1, when we talk about time, life has a poetic rhythm to it. You see, you, can, you cannot manage time. You can only manage yourself up against time. You can choose to invest in it, or you can end up wasting it. What I found out about time is that time waits for no one. 
And when you lose time, you can never get it back. For everything, there is a season and a time for every manner of the heaven. There's a time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silent and a time to speak. That's a good one we wish we had in relationships. A time to love and a time for hate. A time for war and a time for peace. Not only is gift a, not only is time a gift from God, but God gives us the ability to rejoice and enjoy life within time. True happiness is a gift from God. King Solomon gets his act together and comes to the conclusion in verse 12, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, and also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil. This is God's gift to man. <laughs> the preacher makes it painstakingly clear that life outside of God in Christ doesn't make any sense. You can have a good-paying job or a nice car, a big house, intellectual pursuits, have a position of influence, nice drips for people who are listening to understand what that means, <laughs> trying to be different in a cool kind of way. I think, I, think, um, I think you understood what that meant. Believe it or not, Outlook helps determine outcome. I was baffled to see a sign posted eye level directly across from a train track, train track where I stood. And the words were entitled, Call 1-800-SUICIDE. And literally, a couple of days before I saw this sign, I heard of an incident in Philadelphia where a man jumped in front of a moving train. Apparently, it's a thing in our culture today when people lose all hope and despair of life, coming off a pandemic only to go back into one can be very depressing. But Christ is our indestructible hope of glory. True happiness is too heavy to hang on weak hooks. Only God can handle the weight of our true happiness. Jesus is the center of our joy in life. There is no real lasting happiness outside of him. Everything we need ultimately rests in Christ. You want to experience true lasting happiness? Allow Jesus to rule your heart. The psalmist said that the joy of the Lord is the strength of our salvation. And as Christians, we ought to be the happiest people on earth. Not because we are perfect or better than anyone else but because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. It has been said that a joyless Christian is an oxymoron, a contradiction in terms. And I could be a contradiction in terms because I don't always feel like I have joy or happiness in my life at times. And yet joy is proof that what we have is real and it satisfies. 
And just because you have joy doesn't mean that you don't have problems with grief and sadness. All of us struggle with that. And if you don't, keep on living. You will. But what it does mean is that he gives us the strength of endurance to work through any grief and sadness without losing hope. We don't despair because it is Christ in us, the hope of glory. Solomon said there's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. There ought to be something so magnetic about your view and your outlook on life that you compel other believers and unbelievers to take notice and give glory to God. Let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven, Jesus said. Can people in your job or in your class feel your heat for God? The light that Jesus talks about there is that let your light so shine before others. This is not a flashlight, but a hand torch, fire that is ignited throughout the night. See, when we have the right perspective and eternal outlook, your relationship with Christ becomes contagious. People, get, people who get discouraged love hanging around you. And every now and then, on my good days, when I come to work with a smile on my face, some people say that I'm being Joe. <laughs> my name is Rick, I'm not Joe. But I get a reaction out of people immediately. And they say things like, what's gotten into you? What, what kind of coffee are you drinking? And I tell them, that's not coffee. That's Jesus. You see, when you, discover, when you discover true happiness in Christ, your fervency in spiritual matters become infectious. Do your friends rejoice when they see you? Or do people, when they see you, run the other way? Psalm 119, verse 74 said, Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word. The Apostle Paul said, Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Life only makes sense when Christ is at the center of it. It's easy to see that this book talks about the pursuit of vanity, emptiness, and chasing after the wind, but we end up missing the author's emphasis on joy or happiness traced throughout this book. And it's not about finding joy at the job in and of itself, although you may find it there. It's not what the preacher's talking about here. He is saying it's about finding God at work, for he is a source of our everlasting joy now and forever. And as the preacher repeats his message in chapter 8, he says, I commend joy, in verse 15, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. What do you find there when you go to work? Assignments piling up? A boss driving you insane? A dead end when it comes to promotion? You might find those things. But as a believer, as a Christian, you find joy there because it goes with you. It has nothing to do with your job description. It has everything to do with the God inside you. 
The joy of the Lord is the strength of our salvation. It's the little things that we often take for granted, right? The little things that God has richly blessed us with to enjoy, and yet we forget to be thankful, like food and water, a roof over our heads. We're not exposed to the elements. Running hot and cold water. Wow, we get to take showers. The internet access to pertinent information. Access to reliable transportation. A lot of people in our world and rural villages throughout this world are far away from school and food and adequate medical supply to access it easily. But we thank God for electricity, for our health, the fact that we're six feet above ground, for our education, for good books, for the fact that you have a computer and a smartphone. It's the little things that we tend to take for granted, right? And more importantly, we have people in our lives who love us and who care for us, even though they know that we're a slightly cracked egg. My wife knows that I am one. And I'm sure you can add countless things to this list. But the preacher reminds us in chapter 2 that none of this makes any sense apart from the Creator. We have so many reasons to be thankful and to be grateful, right? There are two classes of people in this world. Those who take things for granted and those who take things with gratitude. Which one are you? I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil. For this is God's gift to man. C.S. Lewis has said this. He says, he who has God and many other things has no more than he who has God alone. Joy or happiness can be found in many places, but the fullness of joy can only be found in one place, and that is the presence of God, as we heard preached last Sunday. The ultimate experience of joy comes because we're drawing closer to God in Christ. That's why the angels describe the incarnation of the Son of God as the good news of great joy for all people. Not only does God bestow on us the ability to rejoice and enjoy life, God gives us the ability to do good in our lifetime. He says, I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. So often we go to funerals. and We've given a obituary to commend the life of the deceased. And right there at the top of the obituary is the person's name the date they were born, and the date he or she died. But have you ever noticed the dash in between the dates? It's so small that you can easily not take notice of it. But it's the most important thing on that obituary, your dash. What do you want your dash to represent for you in life on earth? Your dash in Christ. The preacher opens this section with the inescapable, it's a time to be born and a time to die. What we do in between that time makes all the difference. What do you want your dash to mean? Paul elsewhere exhorts us to do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Owe no one else, owe nothing to anyone except love. Outdo one another in showing honor. You could be a listening ear to those who are hurting. 
You can speak up to someone who is being bullied. You can do random acts of kindness. You can volunteer your service at a local shelter. You can ask your church leadership, how can I serve versus always being served? You can make friends with somebody who look different than you. All of these are great things to do, but keep in mind that none of these acts will earn you right standing with God. We're not saved by our good works. We're saved for good works. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 tells us that we are saved by grace through faith, and this is not of ourselves. It is a gift of God and not a manner of works lest anyone should boast. But please don't leave off verse 10. Verse 10 says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We have not been saved to sit. We have been saved to serve. God gives us the ability to do good in our lifetime, but he also gives us the ability to eat and drink. I know that's very basic and simple. But what if you didn't have the ability to eat and drink? You would shrivel up and die. Appetite is a gift from God that we often take for granted. Solomon tells us in chapter 2, verse 24, there is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw as from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Appetite is a gift from God. Now, I have to make a confession here. I, I like seafood, but not the kind of seafood you think. When I see food, I eat food. But, but let me qualify myself. Not just any old food. I like eating good food. And I could not imagine what life would be like if I did not have the gift to consume food. <laughs> I can't even wrap my mind around that. I really can't. I mean, yet, it's not something we think about philosophically, is it? We, just, we, we say our thanks before we eat, but we just eat our food. I mean, I couldn't imagine what life would be like if I couldn't have bang bang shrimps with jasmine rice and broccoli. Where are my foodies at? Any foodies out there? No foodies out there? Do you know one of the first things Jesus did when he, after he rose from the dead? Guess what he did? He went to cook breakfast for his disciples in John chapter 20. He broiled fish and gave them bread and served them bread. Talk about being down to earth. The disciples had fun with Jesus. They had fun hanging out with Jesus. And yet Jesus said in Matthew chapter 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out the mouth of the living God. There's not a day you're not goes, there's not a day that goes by that you don't instinctively think about eating and drinking. And although we enjoy it, we don't have a license to indulge it. For God gives us the ability to eat and drink, which is truly a gift from God. And number five, God gives us the ability to take pleasure in all of our toil. What gain, verse 9 says, has the worker from his toil? Well, the answer to that question depends on if God is in it. Notice uh, what's sandwiched in between the word toil or labor. God makes and God gives. You see, God in Christ 
must be the center of all we do or all that we do will lead to a dead end, the preacher reminds us repeatedly. Okay, not everybody hates their jobs. There are many professions that are innately satisfying. I enjoy where I work throughout the day during, during my part-time, during my full-time job. And some people hate where they work. In fact, Monday uh, can be the most depressing day of the week for many people who don't look forward to going into work. And some people love the fact that we're in the midst of, of a pandemic because they get to work from home. <laughs> Yet, even if we strive to find meaning in our jobs or careers, make sure that the career doesn't define your worth. Careers only lead to a dead end if God is not in your life. The problem is people often look to their jobs or careers or things in life to give them ultimate happiness or meaning and worth. And it's quite easy for us to, as sinners to wrap our hearts around our careers instead of God, only to be crushed by it later. You could be climbing the ladder of success only to discover that when you reach the top, your ladder is leaning up against the wrong building. And as Alex preached a couple of weeks ago, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Listen to the preacher's piercing words in chapter 2, verse 24. And there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For the one who pleases God he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity, a striving after whim. God gives us perspective in all of our toil. Your job may initially suck, but God gives you hope and a positive outlook. And it reminds me of that old commercial way back in the day you probably don't recall where that guy gets up and wakes up in the morning, early in the morning, he's halfway asleep and he's making his way into Dunkin' Donuts and he says, it's time to make the donuts. Drudgery. Doesn't like his job and some people treat their jobs like that. Not looking forward to going into work. Certainly your job can help you flow in your life purpose, but only God can give you ultimate significance even at your job. Only God gives you worth and meaning and eternal satisfaction in life. Let me give you a reason to be happy at work just in case you don't like your job. The reason you ought to be happy on your job is because you have Christ in you, the hope of glory. You have incredible joy on your job because of Christ in you. The preacher says elsewhere in chapter 5, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toy in which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone who, to whom God has given wealth and possessions and powers to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, he says it again, this is God's gift to man, or this is the gift of God. For he will, watch this, not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy. God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. And may that short but powerful statement be a prayer for us, that God keeps us occupied with joy in our hearts 
even in the midst of what we're going through. Life is short. Paradoxically, you can experience joy even in the midst of grief because Jesus is in it. He says, let your heart not be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. These things that have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy might be full. Here's a tip. It's not that deep. If you don't like it, you can quit it. You can quit your job. But before you do, make sure you go get another job, because it's easier to get a job when you have one. It's just practical advice. Some people say, you know, I can't even find a job. In the words of John Audubon, he says, my main job is to live with deep contentment, joy, and confidence in my everyday experience of life with God. Everything else is job number two. I recall my manager hiring me some time ago, and she asked me if, before she hired me if I could teach a robotics course. <laughs> I said, what you talking about, Willis? I said, who, me? I know nothing of coding or building robots from Legos, let alone teach a course on it to young adults. But you know what? I really desired the job, so I agreed to do it. I was given a two-week window to build my first robot using Lego Mindstorms, which comes with a scratch software. Well, I worked around the clock, and I built my first robot and I was ecstatic, and I was overcome with excitement. So I, I rushed downstairs, because I was working at home at the time. I rushed downstairs to my wife to show her what I accomplished. And I said, babe, look at, look at what I was able to do. And she looked at me in an innocent way and said, well, that's pretty cool. Can you make it move? I was like, oh, uh, not, not, not yet. I mean, I, I just took a whole lot of time to build it first. What, you can't make it do anything? <laughs> All right. So you know what? I took it back upstairs, and I spent hours figuring out how to use the Scratch software. And finally, I went back downstairs. I showed her uh, a couple of moves. I turned it. And I said, watch this, babe. Check this out. And I programmed it in such a way that it went straight, and it turned. And she said, well, can you make it turn around and come back? <laughs> I was like, oh, my goodness, I can't satisfy anybody. <laughs> but what's crazy is, after learning how to, to build this robot and program it to move, I eventually figured out how to do it and then also was able to teach the course to the students I now work with. Um, and I take pride and pleasure in my accomplishment. Yet I realize that my true happiness is not based on my job or others' approval but is rooted and grounded in Christ. I'm grateful to take pleasure in it, but I have to trust in Christ as the one who provides me ultimate significance. We look carefully at what God makes. We also saw that God gives us what God gives us causes us to have joy or happiness. But finally, I want us to end with the preacher's concluding thought, what God does. Let's look at the quality of God's actions in verse 14 through 15. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is has already been. That which is to be has already been. And God seeks 
that's what has been driven away. The first thing I need you to notice about that part is that what God does is permanent. What God does endures forever. He has fixed time and eternity, and nothing can alter it. Number two, what God does is not only permanent, but it is also thorough. It's perfect. I recall taking my car to a well-known auto mechanic, and um, I won't say any names, but they diagnosed my car as having an issue with the alternator. And they gave me a quote and said, well, this is going to be your total, $750. And I said, you got to be joking me. This is, yep. But the cost of labor and the part itself costs about $500. And you also need to replace your battery because we, we can't install that without the battery. I was like, ah. Oh. It's like, all right, go ahead, do the work. Finally, he was able to accomplish finishing the work. And then they handed me the key. I got into my car. To start it, and it wouldn't turn over. I said, you got to be joking. $750, okay, let me get out of the car and go back in there. I went back inside. Excuse me, sir, it looks like I'm having a problem with my, with my car. You guys just fixed it, right? Oh, yeah, let me, let me see what's happening. He gets in the car, and he, he turned it a couple times, the ignition, and it started right up. I was like, then I get in the car, and I turned it off and turned it back on, and it worked. Then I drive off, I get to work. Later on, when I get back in the car, I had the same problem I had before taking it to this mechanic. But to turn the ignition, and the car didn't turn over until the third or fifth try. And I said, oh, man, I don't know if they diagnosed the problem as the right issue. So I, I was very concerned about that after giving them a call. They said, well, just bring it back in. I said, no. I'm taking this to the original uh, manufacturer's dealership. And I took it to my dealership, and they said, well, uh, normally this type of car in this year doesn't have a problem with the alternator. The alternators are pretty reliable on this car, especially this year making model. And he said, the issue here, when we diagnosed it, you have an issue with the, with the actual, with the starter, not the alternator. I said, you got to be joking me. Well, how much is that? He says, well, that's going to be about 450 you know, when you include tax and everything else and labor. I was like, oh, man. I was like, all right, go ahead, do the work. He did the work, and then um, he said, so your car is ready. He gave me the key. I got in the car, turned the ignition and it turned right on, just like it was a normal car. And so I drove off and I thought to myself, wow, had I brought it to this dealership the first time, I wouldn't have had this issue. And um, why am I sharing this story? Because it reminds me that that man might not get it right the first time. The mechanic was off. A doctor may not have the best remedy. The expert may not get it right, but God is thorough. God is thorough. God is perfect. And whatever you have that's broke, you bring it to him, he can fix it. In his time and in his way, he can fix it. Why? Because it's permanent, but it's also thorough. He does it so that we 
would fear before him. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. For God has done it so that people should fear before him. God does it not only to be permanent and thorough, but God does things that stir our hearts to worship him in the beauty of his holiness. God is awesome. I kneel in all of his greatness because it's unsearchable. I thank him for his wise providence. It's perfect. I'm captivated by his majesty. I'm astounded by his glory. I am struck by his sovereignty. We are speechless at his loving kindness. We are overwhelmed by his goodness. We are overjoyed by his mercies. We are amazed by his grace for us in Christ. God has done it so that people should fear before him. The only appropriate response for us right now is to give God the glory and the honor that he so rightfully deserves. To fear God is a healthy, holy respect for him. But even more importantly, it is loving God with all of our hearts, mind, soul, and strength. And that is not possible apart from God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Listen how the preacher concludes his sobering book in chapter 12, verses 12 through 14. He says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Here's the conclusion. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or evil. Worshiping God is the appropriate response to what God has made, what God gives, and what God does. But even more so, we worship him for who he is. God seeks what has been driven away. One commentator elaborates on this verse and says, God makes the same things happen over and over again. He patiently repeats things until we learn it. He repeats it and repeats it and repeats it until the following, the light goes on and we learn the lesson. Why? Because God seeks you and I. He seeks that which we try to escape from. The truth is, the truth is a dangerous pursuit. Joy is a dangerous pursuit when God is left out of the equation. But Christ at the center of your life means everything. He's the only one who is able to give us overflowing joy. What God makes, what God gives, and what God does. Are you ready to experience the source of all true happiness and unspeakable joy? Are you ready to trust Christ as your Savior because he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man coming to God the Father except in me. True abiding happiness is possible when God in Christ is at the center of your life. Nothing better than life with God in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord God, for your, the joy of the Lord being the strength of our salvation. We thank you that in your presence is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Father, I pray, Lord God, that you'll take these words, Lord, and penetrate our hearts that we may know and glorify you. For true happiness is found only in your son, Jesus Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone say amen. Amen. amen.